HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Square. If you run a restaurant or business, Square has the tools to help you stay connected to customers, shift your business, and navigate this uniquely challenging time. Learn more at square.com slash go slash speaking broadly. Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Each week, I ply women for their wisdom about life and the world. And today, I have a very special guest, Megan Elias. Welcome, Megan. Thanks. I'm really happy to be here. Um, You are the Director of Gastronomy Program and an Associate Professor of the Practice at Boston University. And I am particularly interested to talk to you because usually... I'm focused on the here and now, I'm focused on the future, but today I want to look back at history to try to understand this insane moment that we're living in. And I really couldn't think of a more perfect person with whom to have this conversation than you. Right now, we're living through what we keep calling unprecedented times. But I'm just wondering, in the work that you've done, you've studied American culinary history, I wonder if you feel that these times are 100% unprecedented. Like, if you look back, was the 1918 flu like a preview of this? Or was war a preview of what we're going through right now in terms of food in particular? I mean, obviously, many, many, many other particulars are not the same. But when you look at the world of food, do you see comparisons then to now? Yeah, I do. I mean, I think every historian would say no time is unprecedented, no thing is unprecedented. We make our living off of finding the precedents, right? So I think what's interesting is that the food environment that the pandemic struck in was, of course, different from the food environment of 1918 or I think I see more parallels toward to the Great Depression than specifically to 1918. That what we had come to expect by 2020 out of our food system and out of just food culture was quite different from what had been before. And so the differences we're seeing, a lot of it is in what we had begun to expect to be able to do, to eat, ways we could eat, people we could eat with, right? And that has changed. And the prevalence of dining out or eating out even, you know, let alone dining, right, was so much wider than it had been in 1918 or in 1929 or during the Second World War or ever, really. So that the shock is 
a shock about something that people couldn't have been shocked about before. So the idea that you can't go out to a restaurant, you know, most people in 1929, that wouldn't have struck them as, as being a problem. The things we're worried about are always a sign of what's new about our time, I think. Tell us a little bit about like food shortages, what that was like for the population, and what you think that might portend for us when we have meat shortages, supply chain problems, and how that might affect us. Yeah, I think it's interesting that the reasons are different and so the responses are going to be different too. There's also this kind of secret history of American food rationing, which is that it was never mandatory to the extent that Americans ever rationed. It was just as much as they felt like rationing or could shame each other into rationing. So what happened during the First World War and then again even sort of less in the Second World War was that Americans were asked to cut back on wheat and meat and sugar and fat. And all of that was to aid the war effort in Europe. So meat and wheat were, were, were being sent to the, to the armies, both to the US and to allies, right? Um, sugar was also being used as part of rations. And then fat was actually being used in the creation of armaments so to, to make bullets, right? So people were called on to not use as much fat and to donate their fat. So to save up their bacon grease if they had bacon in a jar and donate it down at these sort of local centers. So there's this big community effort and it's all to win a war, right? And the enemy has been villainized and you know exactly who the person is and you have these propaganda posters that tell you that the way that you interact with food has global implications. So that you can be responsible for vanquishing Hitler by taking a day when you don't eat meat or wheat. So the the public was given this responsibility and a lot of people felt good about that, right? They felt like this is something I can do that helps everybody all over the world. Now we're in a time, there's this global conversation about not eating meat anyway, because we think that not eating meat is actually probably better for the planet, right? Or, or lots of people think this, right? So we already had that kind of moral call. And on top of that, now we're hearing the message, okay, maybe we're not even going to have the choice to eat meat. I think it's fascinating that, I think what you're saying is that we haven't actually had shortages before. So this is maybe the first time that Americans are facing the notion of shortage, like it's actually not available rather than it's your choice to consume or not consume. Exactly. Yeah. So it's a very mixed history, right? The American diet, although this was was perceived as a land of plenty, right, by European immigrants, by indigenous people before European immigrants, you know, it, it has never been true for everybody. So there have always been hungry people in America, despite the fact that there was more food and in, in recent years, it's become cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, but there's still hunger. So it's a very complex system. There are shortages always, but the shortages are because of poverty. They're not system problems. Where we get kind of problems in the system is when we have contamination. And that also is a kind of more contemporary problem because it comes with the industrialization of the food systems. So I know that um, you're a, a student of community cookbooks and inside those community cookbooks, there's tons of baking. I'm seeing a ton of community cookbooks popping up right this very minute. There's so many community cookbooks that are the restaurant community trying to raise money for restaurants. So like our definition of community has changed so much. So I'd love to hear more about the community cookbooks you've investigated and then maybe a little bit about this newer movement in community cookbooks. 
Yeah, that's a great point. So the early community cookbooks, they came out of the Civil War. The first ones were published during the Civil War. They were started by women who were trying to participate in the war effort. And women, of course, were not allowed to be soldiers at that point. And these were women in in the North. They put together their recipes as as something that they could contribute, that that people would want to share. So the idea is that women always share recipes. You know, this is just some part of their usual life. But if they put out a collection of recipes from lots of women who you might not personally know, you could charge a little money for a book and that money could go towards the war effort. And after the war effort, women kept up with these projects because they realized that it gave them an opportunity to contribute to public projects in their communities. And it gave them a voice in public. It made them authors in a way that sort of literary authors never have, re- have recognized. You know, if it's not a full sentence, it's, it's not literature, right? but it made them voices in their communities. So they publish recipes that represent themselves. And that's why you get seven recipes for lemon pie, because if somebody feels that her lemon pie is the best lemon pie, you can't tell her, no, we already have three lemon pie recipes. You know, it's who she is. So that kind of cookbook is a very different kind of cookbook from what we're seeing now, that although both of them are are focused on charity and on using kind of culinary wisdom, culinary knowledge to raise money, they're doing really different things because those professional chefs and and well-known restaurants that are gathering their recipes, they already have a reputation. But the notion of a cookbook as a fundraiser, you know, for a greater cause, that's probably the, the only point at which these two things connect. And then the notion of what is the donation going towards, right? So I guess that's another difference because these women were raising money for their communities. And here today we have these community cookbooks, but they're raising money for their businesses. Yeah. And it's a very different idea too, that you're raising money for for the needy. Those community cookbooks, they were not raising money for the poor for the most part. They were raising money for things like repairing the church hall, occasionally scholarships, but usually they were not for poverty alleviation. They weren't for increasing food access. And I think there is something that the two kinds that the community cookbook of now and the community cookbook of then do have in common, which is an idea that recipes are something people want, which maybe seems so obvious, but in this time when when the internet is full of recipes, right? You, you never need to pick up a cookbook again, unfortunately. But there's this idea that, that a group of recipes, that it can convey some kind of sense of a group of people. And that's kind of, that's what's for sale. Right. This notion of if you buy the collection of chef recipes, it's what it tells you about yourself, which I think goes to one of the thoughts that you talk about with some frequency, which is the notion of your food voice, like who are you? Could you just talk a little bit about food voice historically, what that means, and then also how you perceive food voice during the pandemic? Um, So yeah, so food voice is an idea that was kind of put into words by Annie Hauk Lawson and it's one of these things where when you say it out loud, you're like, oh, yeah, of course, of course, but, but it needed a phrase. And it's the idea that the food that you make, that you choose, that you eat is a way of speaking so that, that food is always a language. That's what I'm always looking for when I'm looking historically. You know, what, what is being said with food, with advertisements, with cookbooks, even just with imagery of, of food? What, what, is, what are the words here? 
we're seeing some really interesting things. You know, there's a new kind of understanding of the lack of resources to meet food insecurity. The The concept of hunger, the concept is is becoming more and more part of the vocabulary as, as people publish a lot of pictures of long lines of cars waiting at food pantries. The idea that if people don't have food to donate, then there isn't going to be food for people to pick up either. So that kind of the symbiosis of the charity network, right, that's becoming clearer to people. And then there's also something that's sort of the other end of this for people who have food that's really intriguing me, which is this idea of the pantry. And I live in a small apartment. I don't have a pantry. <laughs> like I don't have that room, but that room, that idea of the space, I'm finding it again and again in the way people are talking about this pandemic, that you have your stores. It's almost like you have your air raid shelter and what do you have in it? And this sense that you have to have a certain amount of stuff and you have to have the right stuff to feel some kind of comfort in this very discomforting time. And I'm just beginning to kind of look across these articles to see what is it that the popular press thinks is normal to a pantry. So, you know, when everybody says, oh, these are some recipes you can make with your pantry staples, that assumes that everybody has the same pantry staples, which given the multicultural nature of the U.S., I would doubt. I'm fascinated by that idea as well. You've made it more interesting, (laughs) but the notion of what is in your pantry, what can you cook, what do you put aside, what cans do you buy, what, what jarred things, what preserved things. And are you thinking that like right now your pantry is your food voice in a way that it hasn't been before? Oh, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, I think so. People are coming into sort of a consciousness of what they think is necessary. You know, what do I have to have on hand or I feel like I don't have anything? Um, My food voice is often about adventure, experimentation, introducing new voices, through my experience at restaurants. It's not that I don't have a home food voice, but I've never been much of a a home cook and now I'm cooking all the time. So I've definitely had to transition, not intentionally for others, but just for myself, how I identify who I am through food. And I'm just wondering now that, you know, one's identity could change. Like I identify as a farmer's market goer and you may or may not have access to that. What do you see in that zone? I think because there is so much kind of valorization of the of the food adventurer, I think that's that's Lisa Heldke's term. She's a food philosopher and she writes about this persona that a lot of us have that it's good to explore culture through food. It's good to explore food through culture. If you're not trying something new, you're you're not really living, right? There's always something something different you could taste that's a kind of more difficult persona to have during this time, right? In a lot of ways, we're spelunking into the past because we're spelunking into the time when long-term preservation of food was much more exciting to people. So if we're going back to cans and we're going back to frozen food, then they're going back to back to the 20s, back to the 50s, to a time when this was all new technology. Oh, wow, right? You can have fresh green beans, sort of fresh green beans, you know, at a time when they're not in season. We're, we're kind of ditching the locavore voice because we have to, to some degree. You know, if you really want to do it, you really have to wait for an hour on a line at a farmer's market and, you know, wearing masks and standing six feet behind another person. And that's really not the experience that, that people love about farmer's market. That, that brings to mind, I think technology also plays a fascinating role today 
but completely differently. I'd love to hear what you're thinking about influence of technology today versus the past. I mean, I think that there are the two kinds of technology, right? There's the gadgets. Okay, three kinds of technology. The kinds of technology that occur at the, the point of production. So freezing, canning, jarring, treating, all those kinds of things. And those are ever evolving. And then there's the kind of technology, once it gets to your kitchen, do you have a sous vide or do you have an old toaster oven? That could be an interesting thing to start playing with these days. Or do you have a microwave? You know, how do you use your foods with all of those kinds of gadgets? And then there's the most important kind of technology, I think, which is just the information technology, right? The internet. So, yeah, I mean, I guess our, our kitchen spaces are just this convergence of the technologies of the food that, you know, how does it get to our shelves? The kind of technology that goes into that is extremely complicated. And then the technology of what tools we have to do with it. And then the technology of how do we get the information to figure out what we're going to do and also what we want to do. So all of the technology that creates desires. And a lot of that is the communications technology. And, and a lot of that is just produced by, by women who start food blogs. I mean, so, so many women start food blogs and they, they help us to understand what we want. You know, they, they, they make the pictures, they write the cute stories, they include pictures of their cats, you know, whatever it is that's gonna help you think, oh, right, that's something that I, that I, that I wish for, that I wanna try to make. There, there are two other type of technologies related that I, I think are interesting right now. Uh, one is instruction. I'm dazzled by the diversity of online teaching. Uh, there are official courses, there's unofficial courses, there's Instagram stories, there's IGTV, people teaching every single minute of the day. Um, and the other type of technology that just uh, is so different from anything historically, is technology that gets food to your door. So I'm very mindful of frontline workers, and I never want to order frivolously, but I also don't necessarily have that much access to food, and I'm getting food, extraordinary food, delivered to my door that brings me that same joy from having a perfect ingredient. So the cheese from Cowgirl Creamery, which Cowgirl Creamery is in... Point Reyes, California, that landed in my door. I mean, we've never had that technology. No, we never have. I mean, at least for the the very short time when it's, you know, it seems like, oh, it's always been possible to order from your favorite cheesemonger. It's always been possible to order whatever curry leaves on Amazon when you don't feel like getting out and going to the Indian market two miles away, you know. So we've come to accept that as so normal so quickly. But it's really, it's a very recent phenomenon and very... Um, unusual in the history of food, that you can get anything you want. You know, I was really struck by this term that you used, frivolous. You you don't want to order frivolously. So now you're suddenly thinking of your predilections as part of a, a global system that has, you know, real people working in it, right? Before the pandemic, it was almost as if we thought of Amazon as robot delivers or, or any of the food delivery things, right? Right. And, and I think in my mind, there's a matrix because I'm concerned about the worker who delivers my food to my door. I'm concerned about the person who was at the postal center, but I'm also really concerned about the farmer. <laughs> I'm really concerned about them being able to have a, a market for their milk. So you're right. I mean, I think that this notion of being part of a global system, one feels 
on an atomic level right now. Yeah, I think it's going to make people more aware of the food systems than they were before, you know, because everything has become so streamlined that it's very easy to forget that every step of the way is a person who also is a consumer, you know, so it, it doesn't really matter to the FedEx truck driver what you ordered. It's their job. Their job is to deliver things and they are employed, which is probably in some ways comforting during this time. You know, we are thinking about our own desires within the larger context. I'm so like addicted to going to the market every day and just not thinking ahead. And now I'm trying, you know, I'm only go to the market once a week. And so trying to confront myself with this when I suddenly say, oh, I would really like some strawberries with breakfast tomorrow. Nope, can't do it. Like, you know, but we're, we're setting these rules up for ourselves because of this new situation. And I, I don't know if they will last, if we're going to become more in touch with our whims. The way that the food systems are set up now, it's possible to be very whimsical if you live in a city, right? I could just run down. It's, it'll take me 10 minutes to get some strawberries. And that's weird, right? Historically, really weird. I think part of the question here is, is it a whim or is it actually a better way to shop? Because putting it in today's context, it feels whimsical, but putting it into a larger context, if you buy everything at once, there's the prospect of, of waste. And like a gigantic percentage of food waste in this country is because people buy things in the market and let them rot in the refrigerators. And so when you're buying your strawberries in the morning to use that day, and then they're gone, you've actually done a good thing, not a whimsical thing. I think that's something that's probably changing with the way people are cooking, that people are getting more aware of food waste because they're not going out as often. I mean, I think people are beginning to to meet their leftovers (laughs) in a way that they haven't before you know, to figure out, oh, if I made enough the night before, I will have, we will all have lunch the next day, which is obvious. And it's what a whole lot of the cookbooks before the 1950s were about. And after the 1950s, there's this big shift where food just becomes a lot cheaper and processing gets more food to more people around the country. But before that, the bulk of a cookbook was what to do with leftovers. And it wasn't called that because it was just normal. There wasn't even quite that word, leftovers, that concept. But everything, all of the salads that existed, tuna salad, you know, chicken salad, ham salad, which sadly you can no longer find in many places. But all of those things existed because of leftovers, all of the croquettes and rizzles and fritters. All of that was what you did next. I think we are definitely in a different leftover moment because it's time consuming to cook every single day. And that is another retraining I think that we're going through right now. I'm accustomed to making, and I still do, make a fresh dinner every day. I mean, I say accustomed to, I only mean in the time of the pandemic. I seem to not really be able to do too much stuff ahead because my family, when I make it ahead, they're like, but we had that yesterday. Everyone wants it fresh daily, and I kind of do too. You know, it's it's that culture that's still in my DNA, and I don't know that it's ever going to leach out. Like, I don't know that I can cook enough to change that bloodstream. That's really interesting because it's quite recent that that was the way people thought that there would be something new every night. I mean, for most of human history, there wasn't anything new. I mean, it was just, just gruel every day, right? But that would so not fly here in my house. And with that, we're going to take a quick break. And um, when we come back, 
we're going to talk more about the intersection of food history, present, and future. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Square. We all know that this is an incredibly challenging time for our friends running restaurants and small food businesses. With social distancing in place, people are staying home and eating in, and restaurants have had to pivot to pickup and delivery only. HRN would usually be recording our podcast from our studio inside Roberta's, but since they've had to close their dining room, they've ramped up their frozen pizza production, set up a wine and grocery shop, and seen their delivery orders skyrocket. Like Roberta's, many restaurants have been changing offerings day by day as they figure out how to best serve their customers. If you run a restaurant or small business, Square has the tools to help you adapt. One of these tools is the Square online store. It lets you set up a free online ordering page with curbside pickup and local delivery so you can keep customers safe. You can deliver orders yourself or integrate with delivery partners. Its order hub lets you manage all your incoming orders in one place, no matter which delivery partners you choose to use. Square has all the tools to help you stay connected to customers no matter where they are. See everything that's available by visiting square.com slash go slash speaking broadly. Welcome back. You are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Today, I'm having a conversation with Professor Megan Elias, although you're a doctor. So do people call you doctor or professor? Oh, it doesn't matter. Megan's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Megan's fine. And we're trolling through today's new food attitudes to see where they might reflect history. And we've been talking about leftovers and food waste. There was a lot of concern about food waste in the past, sort of for different reasons. Can you just talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so that that became sort of the privilege of being an American starting in the 50s, was to be able to have more than you needed on your plate. That was something that most people hadn't been able to have, again, through most of human history. Um, Just to go back a little more, it, it affected immigrants' cuisines as they came to America. Probably everybody knows already about the Italian immigration that in Italy, you would have spaghetti with red sauce or you would have meatballs, but the two things didn't go together because you wouldn't have meatballs very often. And then in America, it was possible to have all of it together. And so that became Italian American cuisine, this cuisine that has, it has just more Italian stuff in it than the food in Italy. Is that the same for Mexican American or Chinese American? Like, how did those crossover cuisines develop here? So there, there's more of an issue of substitution, but quantity, yes, quantity increases. You can have more things, right? You can have chicken and vegetables and rice and noodles, right? Think about the Chinese-American example. So things that would be much more pared down in a poor rural village when you came to, the, to America, even if you were still poor, you had access to much more stuff. So you could you could embellish recipes in a way that you, you couldn't back home. The situation is, is a little bit different for Mexican-American foodways because there's this, this strong connection across the border. I mean, that the border in some ways just sort of isn't there culinarily. It, there's a, like a big swath of territory where foodways are really both, right, Mexican and American. And it's a common immigrant experience that even if still poor in America, you have access to more just stuff. (laughs) So you start substituting, you start adding. For the most part, it's women figuring these things out, figuring out how to continue tradition, but also make the most of 
the new stuff. It's going to be often women who say, you know, I'm in the marketplace. I don't see the green that I'm used to having in Sicily, but here's this thing that looks like it. And so I'll make that decision. And then that becomes part of the part of the cuisine. You know, we give so much credit to male chefs for innovation, but culinary innovation has always been an ordinary kind of mama's work. Right. And today with innovation and cooking and gender Do you see that changing in the pandemic? Yeah, I wonder. I do think that this is a moment when people are going to be discovering their own expertise in a way. They can't go to the fancy restaurant to eat the fancy food and learn from that. The power of a chef, I think, is going to be somewhat diminished as people figure out what they can do for themselves. And those people, some of them are going to be men who have not been involved in cooking before. Between the homeschooling, the cooking, the cleaning, I think everyone has a much greater appreciation of stay-at-home moms. Exactly. People are really beginning to see that it's work and that the, the food part of it is intellectual as well as physical. You have to keep your entire fridge in your brain and you have to think of every single piece of it and you know what goes with what, who likes what, who won't eat this, you know how can I get us all to the table? All of that calculation that goes on in a lot of women's minds, a lot of not women right, are gonna have to start figuring that out. I have this wonderful student who he has two little kids and they were usually in daycare and now he's home with them and his wife is working and he's not, he's a graduate student. So he is solely responsible for childcare and feeding the entire family. And he said, oh my God, I just realized that lunch is like a whole other dinner that you have to make every day. You know, that there was, this thing was happening, but it was happening away from him and he wasn't seeing all of the work that went into it. I wonder if there's any lesson in history to learn from about changes in people's behavior. Will this last? Will the stay-at-home orders be lifted and all of a sudden everyone is running out to repeat the behavior that they've been accustomed to and just the pandemic is a bad memory. Yes, I think so. I think that's more likely to be what people do because they return to their grooves. If you think about, even think about the way that we eat, we have our favorites, we have our routines. It's been very hard on people, hard in many ways, right? For the food insecure, this is devastating. And the moment that somebody gets a job, they're going to want to not go to the food pantry. They're going to want to go to a restaurant. You know, they're going to want to have that sense of something special of like somebody is serving me food. I don't have to work for it. That's something that we've we've introduced into our culture the concept that somebody else is cooking for you. And it's been more and more and more democratized over time. More and more people have access to that experience. And I don't think it's something that folks will want to give up. And also because there are so many people working in hospitality who feel it, right? They feel hospitable in their restaurants, that it's not just a term for an industry, it's a way of being. You know, all of these chefs who really want to make food for people, not because it makes them money, because it often doesn't, but because it's their calling. I'm curious, you know, coming out of the war, there was the move from the cities to the suburbs. And would you predict a sort of similar transition? I mean, is there precedent for that that you think would hold today? That's tough. Because I think there might be a desire to move to the suburbs, but the post-war move to the suburbs was subsidized by the U.S. government, and I don't think they're going to do that again. So the, the GI Bill 
provided money for returning soldiers either to go to college or to buy a house. Oversimplifying it a little bit there, but those are the choices, right? And so that funded the suburbs, that created the suburbs, that created the entire lifestyle, the suburban lifestyle that we know about, the post-war suburban lifestyle. Before that, there were suburbs, but they tended to be where quite wealthy people live. So, you know, middle-class suburb was a very different thing. And, you know, there's no indication that we're going to see that happen again, or even that there's space for it. So I think people may wish to move out and, and maybe we'll see a change in who lives in cities and why, if they're living here because they lived through the pandemic and they say, oh, this is, this is where I belong. Even if I know it could be dangerous, I want to be around lots of other people. Our economy has changed so much since the post-war period that access to the suburbs is really much more limited now than it was then. I do see the idea of people moving where their home is and where is more affordable. And I don't know that the big cities are immediately going to be more affordable, which brings us to the notion of budget. So, so many people are unemployed. We're looking at staggering, staggering numbers. So some of what we're talking about, you know, return to restaurants is assuming you have a return to solvency. When you think about potential of diminished salary, decimated savings, where's the precedent for that in food history? And what does that predict for us? So again, I would think back to the Great Depression, you know, and I I think we might see this too, to a time when people begin to, again, to live in households that are that are multi-generational. There's a desire to be with more family, because we've seen what happens, like there's a lockdown, and your parents live in another city, you can't see them. So I think there may be a move towards more multi-generational living, which is going to have an interesting impact on cooking too, right? If you have a couple of people in a household who know how to cook, that can really change things. You know, during the Great Depression, there had been that period of the 1920s of conspicuous consumption of people spending money in restaurants and speakeasies and on clothes and all kinds of elegant food and that there's a a return to simplicity in what people at least what food writers write about during and after the depression that it's not it's not sort of seemly to talk about the frivolous things that there's more of an emphasis on the minimum and what really satisfies you and you know that's when you see mfk fisher's writing she begins writing in the 1930s and she's writing about how food can make you feel right and not about how it can make you feel fancy, how it can sort of connect you to your true self. What about the idea of eating healthy? You know, you've studied and talked about nutritionists and their role in defining the American cooking vernacular. And I have stopped thinking so much about, is it healthy? Um, Am I eating too many carbs? Am I eating too much fat? I'm cooking to satisfy a group and we're all happily eating this way. I guess it's like the quarantine 15. But I wonder what your thoughts are about nutrition and the pandemic. Yeah, I think there will, there is a bit of an expansion of the idea of what is healthy to include the things that make us feel better. So the emotional health food, you know, I like to call. I see a lot of people cooking with their kids as a way to keep them busy while homeschooling. You know, I think that's a great way to teach all kinds of things but it also makes cookies, right? And so that's also kind of great. You know, I I hate that term of the quarantine 15, like, oh my goodness, is there one more thing we should worry about? Is like, should we really stress about our bodies, about their size? I know, but I think that the, the quarantine 15 is inextricably linked with 
sweatpants. I feel like there's an acceptance of, you know, you're going to gain 15 pounds, but also you're only being seen from the waist up and it's all okay. Assuming that it's not affecting your health. What's so bad about, you know, gaining a little weight and wearing pants with no buttons and being happy being happy with your food i would love to think that americans could be happy with their food but i think we've had so many years and so many ad campaigns trying to make us unhappy about the relationship between food and body that it will be hard to break that so you've researched home ec a lot and home ec had its place and then it was diminished now parents are the home ec teachers um, I'd love to know more about home ec. I never had the opportunity to take home ec, but people who did kind of loved it. Yeah, there's a mix. So people loved it and hated it. Um, when I was writing that book and I told people I was writing a book about home economics, they would say, oh, I hated home economics. Or they'd say, oh, I learned everything I needed to know in home economics. So very polarizing. It seems to really depend on on you, you know, on the person who's, who's, who's talking and on the kind of teaching that they had and on the bigger context. Was it presented as something that was for losers, you know, or was it presented as something that was actually really interesting? And I had no home ec in my school. I'd never really thought about it. And then I heard about one of the founders of the movement, and she just sounded like a really exciting person. She was friends with Eleanor Roosevelt, and they would drive around in this convertible car in Ithaca. And I just thought, oh, that, that lady sounds cool. How is she connected to this thing that I've always been told is sort of oppressive and anti-feminist. So I was really, really interested in that. In the beginning, I thought, oh, how interesting it will be to study anti-feminist women. You know, I found out that they were not anti-feminist at all, that they were trying to empower people and, and not just women, but they were trying to empower everybody who lived in a consumer society to be savvy about consumption, about goods, about all of these things that we're thinking about now, which is value for money. They were champions of reusing leftovers, remaking clothes, remaking furniture, just like everything was kind of reduced, reuse, recycle sort of culture. And I think their cookbooks, the cookbooks that they used to teach with are really interesting because they have this whole worldview that has become more relevant even before the pandemic because it, it's really focused on reducing waste. So they they encouraged consumer advocacy. They, you know, they encouraged people to not buy stuff that they didn't think was good enough to really have this kind of um, confrontational relationship with grocers, which you could do when they were small. They believed in kind of like in food and domestic life as a kind of constant activism. You're constantly engaged with the outside world through the work that you're doing. Is there a resurgence? Could there be a resurgence? Sounds valuable. You know, there's still programs that are home economics programs in schools. They just have different names. They're called family and consumer sciences. And I would guess cynically that, you know, that school systems that are seeing their budgets cut in half are going to drop those kinds of courses because they're not state tests on them. So what was your food home life like growing up in Brooklyn? Oh, it was wonderful. I was so lucky. My mother raised me by herself and she was from England and she was this kind of cool hippie chick who was interested in everything. And so she loved New York. She loved it because it was diverse. We didn't have any money. We didn't have any furniture, but we would spend whatever we had on food. We almost never went out to eat, but when we did, she'd ask me, oh, make a list of foods of the world that you'd like to try. And so we'll go try those kinds of things. She was a a really good cook, very adventurous. 
So I, I feel like I was very lucky and because we were just the two of us. I needed to learn how to cook quickly too. So I just cooked alongside her and and then I had the father who lived in California and I'd go visit him sometimes and eat crazy wild Californian food and feel very lucky about that too. He'd find a restaurant that he loved and he'd go like at least once a week and he, we would just immerse in whatever it was, the food that he was really interested in. So I feel like I had a great diverse food upbringing, which helped me to be always curious. Well, how did, how did uh, you decide to put your energy and your research into gastronomy? I was raised to think of food as, as information. And so that was a way to know what had, what, had, what had happened, what was going on. And also I think my mother being an immigrant in America, she, she commented on stuff a lot more than an American might have. Things that were ordinary American food were really interesting to her in a way, <laughs> you know. Um, sometimes she, interesting in a bad way and sometimes interesting in a really good way. So I think I always knew that food was something to pay attention to. But you also studied uh, gender in food, and it's interesting to me that your dad actually sounds like he cooked. What led you to study gender in particular? Which um, doesn't necessarily have anything to do with a father who cooked, I'm just curious. <laughs> right, right. Well, like, in some ways it does, right? Because it, it shows you that gender is a construct, right? If you, you see that everywhere in popular culture, dads don't cook, and then you have a dad who does cook and does take care of children, he was a single father of three kids at one point that, you know, okay, that's challenging. So, so that idea that everybody's telling you your dad is weird. Oh, what is that weirdness? Let, let's see what that's about. What, um, what's in there. And I, you know, and I think also the fact that my mom mostly, we, it was just the two of us, like that was something interesting too. Again, it was something that made us weird in the time and place we were living in. So I wanted to know what, what it was, like what what is a woman supposed to be if this is not what she's supposed to be? And I just was always sort of interested in women's history, sometimes in spite of myself, because it just didn't, you know, it didn't seem like the the area of history that was going to get all the funding and the, <laughs> and the Pulitzer Prizes, and it's still not. But I couldn't help myself. I, I, I connected to the past through through women's stories, through what they were doing, through the daily I think that's always been my fascination with with the past is what happened kind of minute by minute rather than the bigger picture. How has studying gastronomy changed the way that you live your life? Ah, So it's great, right? I cannot recommend it enough. Just let yourself see food everywhere. Yeah, I was teaching history for a long time without talking about food very much. And then I began to talk about food more and more and more in my history classes. And my students began to connect to me, to the material, to each other, which was really great. And it just, as soon as you say, oh, food is everywhere, let's talk about it. A lot of it is very sad. You become aware of how prevalent hunger is, how prevalent oppression is, how issues of food sovereignty are you know, are still barely making the news. And then a lot of it is very joyful amongst the sorrow. So the fact that people, when they can get the supplies, they know exactly what they want to make. You know, that people have food wishes, that they have food voices that they need to speak whenever they can. So it's it's very rich, I feel like it's a very rich way to live. And then to be doing it at BU in a gastronomy program where everybody is equally as obsessed with these questions as as you are is just um, I couldn't couldn't wish for a better sort of job if you can call it a job. And how can food history change food's future 
for better. Yes, right. So understanding why we eat what we eat, it also means understanding that we don't have to. And that's really difficult because I'd say over the last 200 years, the world diet has changed radically everywhere. And so if we know that things like back to my strawberries, right, that I, I should expect to be able to eat strawberries any time of the year, it doesn't make sense at all, planet-wise. And so if I can think back and I can say, okay, my grandmother would never have expected to eat strawberries out of season, and she lived a full, happy, productive life, right? It's okay. You don't have to eat strawberries whenever you want them. At the end of each podcast, I ask my guests to give a shout out broadly to a woman who they admire in the world of food or hospitality. And I wonder if there's a woman that you'd like to shout out. Someone whose work I would love for more people to know about is Meredith Albarca, who writes about Chicana foodways. She's a professor at the University of Texas in El Paso. And she writes about women's conversations around food in a way that is so helpful. It's very accessible. And it, I love it because it challenges the sort of the borders of academia. It's very subjective and often academics are supposed to be objective, but it really makes a case for subjectivity in thinking and writing about food. And I have never recommended it to someone without them coming back to me saying, oh my God, I love it. I have to meet her. I have to write like her. I have to do this kind of work. So I would recommend that. That's so exciting. And one last question. Is there a product or uh, an ingredient that you think is extraordinary in the kitchen that is underutilized that you'd like to share? I have, so I'm probably late to this, but I have just discovered the magic of amba, A-M-B-A. It's that kind of curry sauce that goes with Israeli food sometimes. And now I got it and I put it on everything. That sounds perfect. Um, well, thank you so much, Megan, for joining me today on Speaking Broadly. I've loved having you. And thank you for those of you who are listening. I hope you have a great week and we'll be at it again next week with another wonderful guest. If you enjoy these podcasts, please rate and review. That's way more people can hear these stories from extraordinary women whose wise words inspire me every week. Have a great week. Speaking Broadly is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without the support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.